Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Roasted Games Podcast. I am Kaz Gable. And I am and Bill And today Price. we are going to talk about uh, games. What a weird <laughs> idea to take this podcast to talk about games, but... <laughs> games! But, uh, yeah, we have, it sounds like we have a lot of, like... New games to talk about, previous plays, experiences. So let's just jump into it. I, I don't know where where do the spirits take us today, Bill? Should we talk about uh, recent plays? What's what's our no? What's what's getting you? What's uh, really on your mind right now? Well, I just this week got uh, a whole bunch of bunch of games. Uh, really inspired by you and Corey <laughs> and Donnie. Um, so I did get uh, Lost nice. Ruins of Arnak. Uh, I picked that up. I also picked up Dune Imperium. Nice, 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 nice. And and I got the uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer Unmatched set, as well as Cobble oh, and cool. Fog from Unmatched. Awesome, awesome. Yeah. So which, and, uh, uh, what have you had a chance to play so far? Well, <laughs> okay. none of those. So, um, <laughs> well, they just arrived. So, <laughs> but right. But uh, but I did also get another game uh, called Whistle Mountain, which is absolutely fantastic. Uh, I got a chance to play it with Kirsten uh, the same day I bought it, and uh, it was absolutely great. Uh, I really, really liked it. Um, let's see. Tom Vassell called it one of his, uh, like his favorite game of 2020. <laughs> um, nice. It's... Uh, it, it's great, which is actually kind of what inspired me to, to buy it is because it doesn't look like the box just kind of looks like um, yeah. like Whistle Stop, which is another game, which is a fine game. But um, this just looks like a sequel to it, but it's really not. I guess it's in the same Whistle universe <laughs> or what have you. Um, but this this has uh, the Whistle Stop designer, Scott Caputo, and, uh, and actually uh, Luke Laurie who did uh, Manhattan Project Energy Empire, and he also did uh, Dwellings of Elder. Oh, wow, okay. So it's like kind of adding a whole bunch to it. And um, what you get is a really meaty, really pretty, really inventive Hmm. uh, game. And basically it is a worker placement game. Uh, The idea is that you are um, like collecting resources you know so it's totally original um <clears throat> but the, the way that it does it is is abs- is fascinating so you have these three dirigibles you have like a hot air balloon and then like a bigger air thing and then like a blimp and then you have this gigantic okay. like airship right and uh so you also have workers who uh are kind of and it's got this inventive thing where like the water level rises and it can like drown your workers and you have workers like lost in the whirlpool and you can rescue them or you get negative points at the end. Um, so what you're doing is you're building scaffolding uh, up from the water uh, high up the mountain. And then you're placing your uh, your air machines, which uh, one is like a one by one square, one's like a one by two square, and one's like a one by three. Um, so I guess like you can't really call it a square. I guess that would be more of a... Uh, more of like a, a sure. rectangle. Uh, but basically that you can place them on the scaffolding, uh, next to the scaffolding, and uh, the scaffolding has different kinds of resources, like it might have gold or iron or water or something like that. And 
when you place your ship next to them, if it touches those resources orthogonally, then you get them. Um, so, so it's kind of, uh, in a way, it's like you're actually building the worker placement spots for your workers as the game goes mm, on. Okay. Because they're like Tetris pieces, right? So you you it's constantly changing, and there's constantly like these uh, these really great spots, and then somebody builds more scaffolding, and then those are gone, and so but more great spots have been built. And you can also build these machines that you can actually place onto or also place next okay. to. And when you place next to them or on them, it activates the machine, and the machine might uh, give you give you special powers or do different things and and you can activate kind of combos that way and some machines might allow you to trigger off other machines and uh, and then you get uh, points for those machines and if you place the machines on top of your workers your workers get promoted and that's really the only thing your actual worker your meeples do Uh, the workers for the worker placement are your your hot air balloon deals Um, but you can also place on the sides of the board to get like cards that help out or to actually build the machines or uh, to rescue workers for free and things like that uh, on the outside of the board. So you have a a couple different spots that you can place these things. And so basically, since you only have the three airships, uh, you're on a turn, you're either placing an airship or you're pulling them all back and having the chance at that point to build scaffolding and machines and, and things like that. So there's always a lot to do on every turn, even the, the turns when you pull stuff back, that's when you get to build. So those are actually your your more powerful turns. Um, and it's just really, really interesting. Uh, it's, a, it's a really neat spatial puzzle, hmm. uh, as well as just like an efficiency hunt, like a, a worker placement game tends to be. There's just so much to do, and you can never quite do everything you want. And once you build above this certain level... Um, the water starts rising and then it like destroys machines and drowns <laughs> your workers and like takes uh, st- uh, takes resources away from your scaffolding and things like that. Huh. So it's uh, it's kind of this interesting sort of race against the water and against uh, time. And there's just a it, it's oh, it's wow. really neat. Uh, the game ends when all of your workers uh, along the side of this mountain um on yours and all your opponents are all gone so it's uh and the end comes fairly uh more quickly than you would think we were playing for probably an hour and 15 hour and a half and we're like man we still have all we're not even close and then like two turns later they were all gone and we ended the (laughs) the game so um it, it it is a little long uh, but I obviously that that was our first game, so we were kind of learning as as we went. So I think we could shave a half hour off of it. So it's probably uh, I think the box is sixty to ninety minutes. I think that's pretty pretty concrete as far as uh, what it would be after a couple of oh, plays. Cool. Okay, um, but it's and it's it's deeper than it looks, and it's uh, there's just a lot to it, and it's really really cool. It- yeah, it looks super Love cool. It. I um, Love it. you mentioned the video. I haven't had a chance to check out the video, but I was just looking at the BGG page of it. I love the layout. Like the color schemes got those like soft earth tones, and the fact that you have all these dirigibles and balloons is so cool to me. <laughs> it looks really amazing. Yeah, it is really pretty. Yeah, and the production value is fantastic on it. Like everything's like over yeah. the top nice. Oh, that's cool. So, yeah, I, and if you look at the box, like the box looks kind of 
like I no. wouldn't pick this up. No, it looks bland as hell. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I would just pass this up and be like, okay, whatever that is. Um, I'd almost think it yeah, was a kid's game. Yeah, for sure. It does look like that, yeah. But uh, there, there's zero kids going to be playing this game. So uh, it's, it is a meaty worker placement game. But that, that whole aspect of actually um, being able to build the spots and kind of arrange the Tetris pieces, the scaffolding, um, to get you points because you get points when it touches other scaffolding, but to also get really cool spots for you to put your your ships in so it's uh it's a really interesting spatial puzzle there can be a little bit of analysis paralysis with it but Hmm. um but overall uh and and it, it seems like it would play very very differently each time uh, just for the simple fact that you're going to be building different scaffolding. So there's always going to be uh, different places to go. The um, the machines that come out are going to be com- different machines because they're a huge stack of machines, and there's only three out at a time, three small, three medium, okay. and three large. So um, so you're always going to have like uh, just a ton of, uh, of different options. Every game seems like it's going to be going to play very, very differently. So I think there's a lot of replayability here as well which i really like and i I look for in games yeah yeah that's that's the big one i got to play cool yeah i really love that like i was just looking back at like other of luke glory's games because i he's pretty new on the scene as at least a published designer that i'm aware of i mean his he he came out strong for sure with dwellings of elder for sure and uh yeah looks like uh yeah whistle mountain was last year too or two, what is it? Yeah, okay, yeah, last year. It's still 2021, guess. But, man, busy, this guy's busy, busy year of design, or a couple of years of designing up to uh, this big blowout year of 2020 and 2021. It's pretty impressive. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no doubt. Because uh, Energy Empire was a, a big hit, yeah. too. Looks like you've got Energy oh, Empire Cold War so. coming out next year. So it's, it's been a busy beaver, oh. this little this guy, Luke Glory. Uh, that's cool. I really like the look of that. Um, the game. I have to check this one out. Where'd you stumble across Whistle Mountain? Um, I I think actually I was watching a Dice Tower video, and you know I was on um on YouTube, and I think I wasn't paying attention, and it just went on to the next video, which <laughs> oh, happened funny. to be Whistle Mountain, and I went to go turn it off, but then he's like, "I love oh, this game." I'm right. like, "Oh, <laughs> let let me continue to watch this for just a moment," and I watched it. I'm like, "Holy cow, that looks really neat." So, um, yeah, so purely yeah. by accident, uh, huh. to be honest, purely by accident, but, uh, great. And if you look the, all the other reviews are, are very solid. So it's, uh, it's definitely been fairly well received, but, but I feel like it's, it's definitely flown under the radar. Yeah. Too. Yeah. I've not heard of it. So that's cool. Nice. All right. Whistle Mountain. We'll check that one out. Um, let's see. What have I been playing? I got to, oh, I got to play Merchant's Cove for the first time last game group, uh, which is pretty fun. Uh, this is, this is one that our cohort Jeff has, uh, in his collection and it is an asymmetric market manipulation, not really market manipulation, just more like market game. You're, you're a merchant in, in this game and each character that you choose has their own, product that they make and they have to you know develop it get it to market and then 
uh, the main part of the game is a central board where other things are happening, but the main thing that's happening is that there are going to be people coming into your merchant island where all goods are bought, apparently, in this <laughs> this universe or world. And so there's these meeples <laughs> of different colors that are going to be coming out of the bag, and they're going to be placed on these long ships that are going to be loaded up. And as soon as they're full, then they will take port. They will dock somewhere. And where they dock depends on which goods they'll be interested in buying from you. And, of course, the meeple color is going to depend on which good they're going to be able to buy from you. So you're you're making goods of four different colors. And the meeples are coming in of four different colors. Uh, plus a rogue, which doesn't buy anything. It just takes up space, which is annoying, but that's okay. And so that's a kind of a balance of uh, not only your own little engine, which is very specific to your character of how you make things and, or produce things or breed things. Um, some things are living that you sell. Some things are traditional, like armor. Uh, I was a dragon rancher, so I bred and grew uh, dragons. Um and so, huh. yeah, it's a really fun series of decisions. Uh, it was a great time. I really, really enjoyed this game. It's kind of – it was a long time coming for us because it's one that – the game itself is very simple, but you do have to kind of understand your individual character. So, like, Jeff was telling me before we played, and I kind of got it, but now seeing it played, I understand how hard it is for him to teach it because he's got to have a basic understanding of what each character should be doing for new players um, and also his own character and then, of course, the broad game itself to be able to, like, run this game effectively. And so um, there's just a lot going on, but it's all very straightforward, very simple. It makes sense. It's a logically designed game, which is nice for so many things that are going on. And uh, and I won, so there we go. <laughs> so the most important thing is I won. Nice. Uh, but, yeah, it was, it was great. It was really fun. Yeah, I'm, I remember him explaining that to me, too, uh, when I was in Denver last month, he uh, was saying like, uh, kind of compared it to like Root, uh, where every faction plays like really differently, and so you have to have like a knowledge of how each one plays, yeah, and kind of the game that it's playing separately uh, in order to to really teach it. So that seems like a big yeah. Challenge. I, I don't uh, envy him having to teach it i definitely feel like it's hard but i feel at this point probably he's played it enough times that he probably has a pretty good sense of how most of the characters work but there's always like a little kind of quirky rule for each of the merchants of if this then that that you've got to remember but um but i don't know i I was impressed with uh, when you know when you get games like that where there's so many so much asymmetry and there's like root's a good example but Merchant's Cove just seemed to come out with the base game and then immediately, like, uh, in, well, the Kickstarter included a lot of these, but immediately, like, expansions, other characters to play, other characters to play. They all really seem to mesh well in the main base structure, and there's none that seems to be, like, extremely overpowered. Um, at least in my experience, and this is one playthrough, but we played with a complement of four. Everyone obviously played a different character, and it was it was fun to see the balance there to the ups and downs throughout the game of... Um, you know, early game, like my brother was visiting, he played the blacksmith and he, you know, just the blacksmith's pretty straightforward as you might expect. You're just making armor and weapons and you're selling them and you can kind of get this really straightforward engine going. Uh, Chris uh, was playing the 
Chronomancer, I think is what it is. They, he and his assistant can manipulate time to benefit them to get better resources. And they're, what they sell is really funny. They go back in time and steal, like, relics. Uh, <laughs> so they might have, like, the Liberty Bell or just – and it's kind of weird to see these things in, like, a fantasy world. But, you know, they don't make sense to them either, I'm sure. They're just, like, fantastic historical relics, and they sell them in this world. <laughs> they go steal them. Yeah, whatever this people was really we're into this this is probably cool you who wants to buy it uh and then uh jeff was the um uh i can't remember the name of it basically he was making potions and uh, to sell and so everyone had a very different approach but they all they all had a there none of them some of them were a little more complex than others but none of them felt like they were too easy to get your things to market or you're just cornering the market and i think that has a lot to do with the central board design of how we all kind of share responsibility for pulling these meeples in on the longboats and choosing where they go and where they don't go. And so you kind of have to hedge your bets regardless of how your merchant makes things. You want to build or create um, several types of things for market. Uh, you might not it's have a, a good sale in the first round, but like for me, I trickled in a couple sales. And then the last round, I just had a massive sell-off and I uh, was able to take the lead and keep it. And so there's a lot of really fun strategy in here of timing because uh, it's actually kind of a shortest game for such a big setup in the big game. Uh, it's only, let's see, is it only three rounds? Is that right? It's three or four. It's something like that where it just feels like you're just kind of getting going uh, and then it's over, but not in a way where some games feel like it's an abrupt stop. It definitely feels like a satisfying buildup and sell-off. Like you've you've got that engine going. You've probably so prepared as many of items as you can because there's a limit, like you only have like four of each color to prepare or six or something like that. And so it's like, I can't really build anything more, so I might as well sell them off. Final round, boom, I did it. All right, massive points. So anyway, all around Merchant's Cove was pretty great. Huh. Yeah, it sounds badass. It's it really cool. Yeah, the, design, the art design is just uh, astounding. Like they did a great, great job on it. Um, and uh, yeah, I definitely recommend checking this one out. I, I am not even sure if you can buy this one straight up i would assume you can i know it was a kickstarter thing but um if you have a chance to play it much less buy it i would, I would definitely check it out it's it's pretty cool i recommend the dragon rancher you have to clean up dragon poop but <laughs> that's part of the charm a small price <laughs> right. to pay all right what else have you what else has been on your mind well we um we play tested uh, the extra rules for um, nice Isle of Cthulhu, the game that we're working on, uh, really well. We got the the time issue oh, cool. taken care of, so uh, we came in um, with the two of us uh, making fairly suboptimal choices. So probably extended a little bit. It came out right mm -hmm. in at uh, an hour and ten minutes. So I think that um, we played a couple games and we're playing more appropriately i think i think an hour is exactly where the sweet spot is which is what i was looking for uh but we found a couple i found one other kind of glaring issue with uh our the the artifact deck um it just we're not we're not going through it we each ended the with like one artifact each and it just didn't play any part in the game mm. whatsoever so uh i've got a couple ideas to to offset that but uh, we're so close <laughs> nice so close yes and i i did see that you've started a mind map i'm excited to jump in i was uh, we haven't had a chance to talk before but this is my last uh, brother's last week of visiting so i've been very distracted about anything else but i am excited to take a look and i see what changes you guys have been working on that's really cool 
Yeah, yeah. Um, and as far as the that goes, the the Mind Meister, we can. Uh, thank, yes, thank, thank you, you Corey and Donnie. That's who <laughs> we're using now. Um, and so, so I did, I did get the paid subscription, so we can do all oh, the sweet. mind maps okay. we want, and we can share them amongst ourselves and whoever. So, um, so yeah, I'm excited to to give that a try. I just want to try brainstorming something from scratch. I think that would be super fun because then we could kind of document on on how it works and. That sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited to get uh, to see where where you've been. I know you've been working on it and kind of see where you're you're at with it and and uh, yeah, just jump back uh, back and forth and talk about what uh, where you're uh, the direction you see it going right now. Yeah, I think and where it is at the fun. moment. I think it'd be fun to kind of document from from scratch, like brainstorming in through the details. Uh, I think that would be be a fun journey. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Um, all right, let's see. What else have we got? I have been. What else have I been playing? I've been honestly. Merchants Cove sort of pretty much took up most of my uh, uh, game night the other night. Um, I had a fun. Actually, my I was testing the waters recently with my seven year old playing un, uh, unmatched with him with the Jurassic Park um, engine or the Raptors and engine workers version of the game and i was just like i oh, will just mess around with this and kind of play kid rules but he actually got it pretty well i was very i was happy to see it so um that was a game i actually just played today because he's off school so we tried it and i was really happy to see the fact that he could kind of yeah, wrap his head around the strategy and once again kudos to those designers for making a very straightforward simple game that is more strategy to discover of course but very accessible to to gamers and specifically my seven-year-old which is makes warms my heart at least oh good <clears throat> Good, good. Uh, um, so speaking uh, of unmatched, I'm curious, like, what your uh, have you had a chance to crack open the Buffy or any of the um, boxes that you just got? Um, I I cracked open both of them. I put them together. I, I looked through the cards. I kind of did a little bit of a, a minor walkthrough. Um, nice. And and so I'm familiar now with. Uh, the cards for for a few of the characters and then sort of how everything interacts and i read the rules and um i'm i'm excited i'm i'm excited it does look uh it does look fun but not like so seriously like into itself that you're done and you're just mad i feel like right. you, you get done and you're like i want to try a new character um, yeah 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 so that's that is I, exactly the feeling i have read that the um from that the Buffy set is uh, a lot of people have said that they they didn't have high hopes for it when it came out, but that the characters are really really well uh, balanced. Nice and and uh, they a lot of people say it's one of the better sets, and almost everybody <clears throat> says the Cobble and Fog is the best set that's out. Um, so I'm excited yeah. to to see to see that one. Yeah, I don't honestly. I don't think they met. Like I was doing um, just recently watching because I ended up picking up the uh, Bigfoot and Robin Hood, and then Beowulf and Little Red Riding Hood recently, um, <clears throat> uh, as well. Because I was also very inspired about Unmatched. Like, revisiting Unmatched got me inspired again, and I was going through one of those articles or reviews of like ranking them. And I honestly don't think there's a really a bad set in the mix here. There's definitely ones that maybe shine more than others based on personal play style, but I feel like they're all so well designed. And because I've heard that similarly too, they kind of Buffy sort of 
as a choice to go with it <laughs> came out of left field. They're right. like, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, where'd like, that come what? from? <laughs> so, but there's a lot of Buffy fans out there for sure. I'm definitely one of them. And I was so it was cool to see it. But then you're also, you never know when there's like a niche, you know, intellectual property that's brought up. It's kind of like, ah, give us your money. But, but as I've heard that as well, that it was actually surprisingly well done. And some um, of the characters in this set are some people's like top five in the top five of all the characters they come come out with so i'm excited to hear your your thoughts on it as you get to play yeah yeah by the time uh by by the next uh next episode i will have uh probably played just about all eight characters so uh nice. either played them or played against them so i'm i i intend to get that that to the table quite a few times so um i did have one thing i wanted to talk about it's uh it's a okay. it's a week or so late because uh, it uh, was it's about an Eric Lang tweet that he tweeted about uh, a week week and a half ago, and okay. um, and and I don't have the exact tweet anymore, but I can paraphrase, and uh, and I think it would make for an interesting discussion. Okay, so let's get into it. With the um, the he made kind of a prediction, and that's with uh, with the pricier shipping. Now going with uh, not just with Kickstarters, but with with all manufacturers, whether it's straight to retail or um, shipping to backers or what have you, there's obviously this uh, this massive shipping pricing increase, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the shipping containers we've talked about it before. It's uh, it's just like crippling, especially small publishers. So, right, right. Um, he was making some predictions that. The um, the board game industry as a whole has been underpricing their games for for years, and he sees uh, the possibility, the probability that um, publishers will be increasing their MSRPs to compensate for all the the shipping, additional shipping costs uh, to sort of offset that, and that it uh, it very well could potentially push a lot of smaller publishers out of the arena but at the same time it could also force uh some of the smaller publishers to kind of double down and make a better product Mm -hmm. and and so i was kind of curious like what your thoughts are on whether you think that would be a positive or negative thing if we saw um over the like just across the board if we saw price increases and msrps for uh for your average board game yeah geez i don't know that's a hard one because you think of like in the last 10 to 15 years um quality of board game components has drastically rocketed up and you think is that that you know that's a lot of driven with competition and setting yourself apart and like the kickstarter model being the one that everyone kind of goes by these days but also i get what you're saying too about um, you know, when you have, when you're selling less volume, it, does it allow you to put more time into a game and develop the, you know, each game is going to, is going to bring back a better return, uh, potentially if the prices are higher. So how does that affect your quality of pieces? How does it affect your design time and your bottom line? Of course, at the end of the day, these are all businesses and they need to be profitable to keep going. I don't know, man. That's a hard one. I'm going to think about that for a second. <laughs> but well, what are your thoughts? And I can kind of, I can see, uh, 
kind of what he's saying in that that I think I agree that that I think board games are underpriced. Um, I think if you look at ten years ago, some Euro games that realistically at the time Euro games were wooden cubes, board, and cards, a lot mm-hmm. of them, and these uh, it's regular old midweight Euro um, from you know some such old publisher uh it was like if you go to the game store it's like 69.99 it's like 70 bucks right and now you've got games like like nemesis and dwellings of eldervale that have just these like beautiful minis and just tons of them and all these these uh custom custom components and custom like wooden pieces and custom plastic pieces and custom metal pieces like and and all this and uh and they're just these gigantic games that are kickstarting for like 100 bucks 120 bucks a piece for just like and and some of them less like the the uh regular mm-hmm. pledge for the the meeple version of the uh great wall which has twice the components that your average euro used to have um was like $65. So yeah. I, it's it's cool that that the components and everything like like your production quality has been rising so drastically, but prices really haven't. And yeah. and I think also you can you can say uh maybe there may be some incentive or some um some potential to um to from a human rights perspective and this is just mm-hmm. this is um, me going to be all social justice for a second but um, from a human rights perspective maybe we could source manufacturing better um, from and maybe not uh, maybe have a better idea of paying workers a fair wage um, being you know fairly green in in how you are uh you're manufacturing your products and you could eat that additional cost because you're charging more. So yeah. maybe a game that, you know, now is, you know, at $65, maybe it's a hundred dollars. Uh, and maybe your costs rise $20 a unit, $30 a unit and, uh, an extra 10 bucks in shipping. And you've made, you've, you've made up for it. Uh, your, 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 uh, your profits are still equivalent because I don't necessarily think that anyone needs to take less profit. I don't have a problem with companies who produce something um, to take a profit. Uh, that's why they're in business. But if you can potentially make the same profit but have a smaller carbon footprint, uh, make sure that you're paying uh, proper wages, uh, maybe maybe you've got uh, you could look potentially at some American manufacturers. Mm-hmm. Uh, in in some cases, uh, and that that right there would eliminate some shipping costs. So now maybe you're putting other greener alternatives on uh, other alternatives that could better support our economy um, or or other growing countries' economies, um, and still still keep that bottom line. So I, I think yeah. I think that could be very positive. Obviously, that would mean that we're paying more for board games, um, and instead of buying <laughs> ten board games a month, maybe now we buy six, um, <laughs> and and that that inherently will also I think uh, will have an effect on on the industry. 
But yeah. But I think that I, I think honestly at this point there's so many games coming out, and so many of them are getting lost in the shuffle, that I think, I, I hate to say a culling, but I, I think that uh, maybe a reevaluation of uh, of some of the publishers, because I think a lot of a lot of publishers are just like, oh, we've got a we're designers, we have a neat idea for a game, let's take it to Kickstarter. Now we're a publishing company, right. and maybe those should have gone those designs should have or could have gone to a different publisher who may have been able to help with development a little bit more and maybe we could get better games yeah yeah that's an interesting take i it, it's it, one of the things that our hobby suffers from which is going to be an interesting th- where that kind of that over the pricing uh, adjustments come from I, because they're being forced upon the industry and then just happen because it makes more sense for publishers is like we're very much caught up as any young hobby is in the cult of the new you know what i mean so that's going to be a hard adjustment but i i agree i do think it's a positive thing overall i think a lot of us too have an issue with going back and replaying games <laughs> and um i don't know i i would be fine with it to be honest like i think that it probably would be I would hope it would be good for indie developers or smaller publishers and the fact that they're able to have higher margins because you think of other publishers that we've talked to or just in general that are are small and you have to have this consistent engine of publishing, publishing. You can't really um, – the margins are so tight. A lot of these publishers are not full-time things. Like at any moment, anything can go wrong and, and kill them or a lot of times they're funded by personal – wages by the people who are running them they're taking their own jobs and paying for these things and pushing it forward pushing it forward for the love of the game and games in general so i i definitely could see it being a positive thing i'd just be curious to see how well that would work because there's always going to be that engine of the new and because we have the availability of cheap production in china ah yeah i don't know but i but i also would agree with you about the human rights thing i think as a hobbyist and a game community like this you do have to kind of take stock and like think of what you're buying does like games there is this human rights issue but it's also a massive like waste issue like you think of all of those games and the production and the amount of pure plastic that's made for board games um that's a lot of that's a lot of shit (laughs) that's a lot of crap out there and it goes somewhere and um not only is it you know, sold and a lot of these games, of course, are sold, but that's a lot of byproducts, pollution we're creating just for this hobby. And uh, yeah, we probably don't need 5,000 games per year. <laughs> that's true. And, um, and ad- additionally, as much as I, I, I back a lot, obviously, you know, this, everyone knows this. Mm-hmm. I back a lot on Kickstarter and I would say easily 50% of the games that I back end up being awful. I'm not sure. even going to say not just not for me. I'm going to say inherently just intuitively bad games. Um, games that I might play once and be like, ooh, this looked so pretty. And I really, when I watch the, you know, the video, I really, this is not the game experience I thought that I was buying. And it's it's invariably from a first-time publisher or a designer who, you know, uh, decided he was going to, you know, put his life savings into this uh, 
this particular campaign and made it work. Uh, got got your thing out two two years late, but you know eventually you got it, and it's not good. And I think that yeah. I, I think that if if it became more expensive, and I came, became more of a um, more of something that only a certain caliber of publisher experience um mm-hmm. then i think that you could you you'd see better games yeah there's five thousand games i would agree with that for sure plus because that I, come I, out but but how many of them are good like what what wouldn't you rather have two thousand good games than mm-hmm. five thousand games where three thousand of them are barely playable well, and you'd hope too that that would, I would assume that that would help indies as well. Like, right? you're easier. There's less of a, a horde to set yourself apart from, you know. And and you know we've all we've talked about this before. And like the Kickstarter phenomenon of style over substance is a lot of the times what sells Kickstarter games for sure. And then a lot of people get them, uh, cut their losses, never play it again, whatever. Um, but yeah, like you said, it'd much be preferable to get that game, wait a little longer and actually be super excited and satisfied with it. And honestly, a lot of, especially with COVID, a lot of us had massive delays in the last year of games that we wanted or had ordered. And it's just, I still have a game that's like pushing over two years now that I haven't got. And, uh, that's an exception, but like, I think we Carnival Zombie? probably, yes, yes, be done with, uh, we could all accept a longer wait time, honestly, and I, I definitely think we could. I hope it. I, I'll be curious to see how it actually plays out because there's always the market forces too that are gonna, that are making this this you know generation uh, production engine is very good for a certain aspect of the gaming market, um, and there's always that call to, you know, churn out higher volume versus higher quality. Um, but you'd hope that there is a movement to kind of rebalance those skills because it is right now volume over quality at the end of the day. There's a lot of great games that come out, but there's also, like you said, a lot of crap and a lot of just uh, just grabs. I mean, they're not even well designed. They're just maybe someone might like them, but a lot of them aren't even good, not even at all. Like who would like this game? And it's just at the end of the day, just trash. <laughs> it's just filling a landfill somewhere. Yeah, it's who who can make the best commercial. Um Sure. But but at the same time, what, where where I feel like this is really this shipping crisis is really detrimental is to the uh, really small publisher who's uh, maybe it's their first or second game and their goal is fifteen thousand dollars, right? Sure. And so they they've got everything set up so that they're they're making bare minimum. They're they're able to cover, and then all of a sudden, and I've seen a few of these campaigns where it's like. Here the game's fifteen dollars, shipping is twelve dollars, or in some cases uh, there was one uh, the game was it was thirteen and shipping was fifteen, hmm. and you're like, well, why wouldn't you just? I I think you should just make the game, you know, twenty or twenty two and and kind of eat yeah. it with the shipping, but um, but you're you're seeing those people who are cutting it really close, and then all of a sudden they're seeing seven eight hundred percent increases in shipping and they can't cover it so yeah. you, have, you yeah. have people who are who are running these campaigns and are losing money just so that they you know have a shot at making something else again they they made raise sixteen thousand dollars but it's going to cost them twenty one thousand to get it out to everybody yeah 
and that sucks. Why would nobody wants that? Right. Yeah. Nobody wants yeah, that. To, nobody wants to do that to somebody. Like I'd feel I feel bad about that. I I can't tell you how many games uh, I've had. Uh, I've seen that that same thing where where the um, the guy will send out an update and he'll say, "Hey, I'm gonna get everybody's game out, but I want you to know I'm taking a loss on this. If somebody anyone wants to help, you know, here's my PayPal or you know whatever. I'd really appreciate anything that you guys could could do to kind of help with the increased shipping." And and I'm sure some people do, but I'm sure a lot of people don't. And and so you can just see that. And right now is a scary time to run a Kickstarter. They're they're still coming out, but it's not a scary time to run a Simon Kickstarter. You know, if you're if you're raising like six million dollars, you don't care, right? Because you're yeah. manufacturing at such a large rate that you're 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 eighty percent profit on all these games. So if you have to pay, you know, five times the shipping. It doesn't matter. And now you're only now you're making sixty five percent profit on every game. Oh no! Uh, right. <laughs> so, but but yeah, it's those smaller games that uh, that I, I feel like would are, are really really getting hurt right now. And I think those are the ones that uh, if if everything was more expensive, they could build in better margins and they could actually survive and put out a yeah. better product potentially. Yeah, it's interesting. I'd be curious to hear like if Eric Lang has any thoughts about how to lead this process because it's going to take publishers to lead the charge. You know, someone's going to have to uh, or series are going to have to charge a higher price and hope that their sales numbers allow them to continue that margin and it catches on. So I'd be curious to see, you know, how the process begins of of that, of the industry kind of as a whole getting away from the volume is our ideal um, based argument. Yeah, and, and I I think it, in hindsight, our industry needed, I, I hate to say needed this, but kind of needed this to shake things up a little bit because the the way we were headed and the way we are still theoretically headed, I think a lot of people are just waiting. They're like, oh, the shipping will go back to normal soon. But uh, there's just, there's too much out there right now. It's, uh, the the hobby is producing more than i think it's than than it's bringing in people i think it's oversaturating faster than it's it's bringing in new blood and so i i think that is a problem i think that's a problem in in any industry Uh, yeah like some people are like they point to books in the industry here that they're like oh well look at books there's there's 20 times more books come out every year than than games and nobody says books are oversaturated yeah but the whole planet reads let me rephrase um (laughs) not the whole planet. most more people read than play board games i'll toss that out there because that i know is true um but it's i think there's there's a huge difference there plus a book is like you know three bucks (laughs) You know, if <laughs> right. I could buy if I could buy board games for like five bucks a piece, I'd have a lot more of them. So, yeah. so I don't even think I, I I feel like that's a real apples to oranges comparison. Yeah, 
Yeah, no, I agree. And I've, I've heard the comparison with video games too. And that's, that's also an apples to oranges. Those are not the same industries and the same overhead, same production. That's a physical versus a virtual thing. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. It'd be, it'll be curious to see because it definitely feels like we're by no means out of the shipping issues and potentially with these COVID variants, it could start up again um, and have another hit. Hopefully not as bad as it was, but there, those, those supply lines are not back to normal and don't seem to be anytime soon. Like it permanently changed things about world production and shipping and all that stuff um, that we're kind of having to solve now. So yeah, I don't know. That's an interesting one. That it is an interesting one too. I'd be curious to see, like, it'd be nice to talk to some indie people about their, their kind of take on that. Like, what do they, you know, Eric Lang, I, you know, obviously he's very, a, a darling of, of the gaming industry as well. And I have a heavy respect for him, but he is an established designer. Who's probably not worried about where his next game's going to go. Right. Um, it'd be really interesting to hear about like what indie people think and their take on it, because, you know, you kind of, at this point you've built your whole business around a uh, volume publishing um, model and, and, but it does the, the argument of like higher profits for each game you sell is compelling, giving you more lead time and more time to design and, and troubleshoot because I don't know. And be, the other thing too, is I, I think about it as we were talking about like how many games we've played where we've had the comment, man, this could have taken one more pass. You know, this would have been a great with one more pass and yeah. you end up like house ruling maybe, or just, or you just set it aside because their house rule might not work or, there's just something it was so close and then it just doesn't make it. And then it just sits on your shelf and then, or it gets sold. And, and that's, that's too bad. I mean, that's going to happen probably regardless, but I would hope that it would be a less frequent experience. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed wholeheartedly. So, yeah. So that's, uh, that was kind of one, one thing I was curious to get your, your take on and where you saw, this how you saw this effect in the industry do you do you and so just on building on top of that do you think that this will be a trigger for change or do you think that um people are really just waiting for this to all get itself resolved and everything's going to go back to the status quo I feel like it probably is that second one, <laughs> but I like the fact that people like Eric Lang are broaching the subject. I think it's, I, I, I never really thought of it until you mentioned this to me in the tweet. So I, I really like that he's bringing it up because I think there probably is quite a hunger for it. And um, it's great that the, the conversation starting at least because it would be, it would be nice. I, it, I just go back to like, how do you start this process? Like it, you have to, have like a consortium of like publishers or designers. Um, and not, I guess not even that, like, cause there are definitely games that have long lead times that are able to really take their time. I think it's just honestly being okay with confidence that your game is going to, you know, be you're, you're happy with your game. You're not pushing something out that you're not fully happy with and taking that time to do it, um, that extra time is more time to build hype, more time to get the word out, more time to do play tests, build buzz. So I guess it just hopefully will be a slow burn thing that people just inevitably take the time because the costs of doing it are forcing them to make sure that these games are more consistently popular. So hopefully, I don't know. Yeah. I hope to see it. I, I, I do too. I, I'm, I'm with you though. I, I genuinely think that, uh, Things are potentially going to slow down. Uh, they kind of already are. I mean, you're seeing the big, like, Simon's got their uh, the Masters of the Universe Kickstarter going right now. Um, 
which I'm so tempted on, but I'm not going <laughs> to do it. I've already resigned myself that I'm not going to do it. Um, yeah. But uh, I, I think that we're already starting to see kind of a slowdown of your average Joe. Uh, oh, I have an idea for a game and I put some art together. Let's toss it on Kickstarter and try and raise $5,000 um, because it's going to cost you $5,000 just to ship whatever it is. Right. So, yeah. So you're not making any money. In fact, you're going to lose money, and they they know it. Um, but I think that that's. Uh, I, I I do think that everyone is just waiting for prices to come back down, and uh, and they're saying it could run deep into 2022, uh, if yeah. not longer. So um, it, it could be a little while. I think it's going to get worse before it gets better, but I I don't think we'll see any real industry change come from it. It's nice to think about, but um, I would like to see the margins go up. And uh, I just think there's a lot that this industry could do and this community could do uh, that it's not doing. Yeah. So, but it's growing. It's growing. And uh, eventually, eventually there, there has to come a point where uh, the market's so oversaturated that nobody's making any money. And then, yeah, then I well, think we'll see something happen. Yeah, and you hope it's an adjustment, not like a bottoming out. Like, because you know, board games are such a popular and great hobby right now. And I can't—I mean, I can't imagine people just walk away from it. But, um, but it is—it's such in such a vi- virtual digital world. It's so nice that this hobby has exploded in the way it does over the last you know fifteen years in earnest um in its recent resurgence that you'd you'd hope that it's going to kind of like autocorrect itself and adjust to make it more viable that that it's accessible to indie publishers and that guy or girl with an idea and five thousand dollars that they scrounge up by beg borrow and steal and get it out there because if that we lose that we we lose a, a lot um of like of the soul of our business because so many really great ideas uh, the the ma- massive game started of course from indie gaming and then even today like indie gaming really is an avenue for people to really push mechanisms and adjust and have a playground where they're not ho- they're beholden to anybody but their own kind of crazy idea of how this could work and so if that that it's harder to do that's really a bad 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 thing for our industry yeah i i, I agree and and i don't i don't want to come across like I'm, I'm, I think that it, it should be an industry controlled by nothing but giant corporations. Sure. But, um, but I do think that uh, qu- there's something to be said as far as quality control goes for some yeah. of oh, those those larger entities. Simon uh, Game is going to be good. You know, it's going to be good, uh, and it's mm-hmm. going to be exactly what you ordered. Um, a game that's put out by you know, first time designer, Joe Smith. Uh, sorry, Joe, if you're listening, um, he's, he's not a real guy, but, uh, just in case there's a Joe Smith listening, it's not you. It's a different guy. Odds Uh, are there's one. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, you put put him out and his, his game isn't going to be as good and it has nothing to do with him being a bad designer, but he doesn't have the development resources available mm-hmm. to make the game what it could be yeah uh, so it's uh i don't know where what the solution there is uh i i love new designers like i love to to play games buy games 
uh, good games too that are are from people that are you know first time designers or, or people that uh, I've never heard of before, and uh, I'm I'm big into that. But uh, if they're not good, then what's the point? Right, right. I think we need yeah. more good games and fewer bad games. And I think right now, and I think in the last couple of years, there's been a lot of bad games. Yeah. That's yeah, not good I for think... any industry because somebody picks up picks up the hobby and finds the wrong couple of games and are like, oh, I thought this was going to be cool, but this hobby sucks. And then right. what do we, we lose, right? We lose people that way. Yeah, yeah, and you're out at the money for it. Yeah, exactly. Well, either way, it's changing. Like there are, I definitely feel like this year is going to be a test in there to see how things are adjusting, how designers and publishers are moving forward. I know, um, you know, uh, the other thing too is like a lot of the bigger publishers have all these like properties or designs that they purchased, and so how those are coming out, if they're going to re envision those and. I don't know. It's going to be fascinating to see how it adjusts, and hopefully, there hopefully for the better, at least to a degree. Um, yeah, here's here's hoping. Fingers crossed. Yeah. All right. Well, that's our hour. Do we want to <laughs> do we want to end there? Or do we want to talk about anything real quick? <laughs> we could let everyone stew on that. <laughs> uh, yeah. Let's uh, let's let's stew. Um, so yeah. yeah, and anybody, we'd love to hear uh, anybody's take on on what uh, what they think is happening what they hope happens what uh what you'd like to see as far as this whole situation goes and uh how how do they get a get a hold of us Kaz? yeah well you can do that in a few different ways everybody you can of course go to twitter and instagram at roasted games one uh, you can also go to facebook roasted games uh, you can go to our podcast hosting page eavesdrop.com scroll down to the roast games page and fill out our comment form uh probably just type in roasted games to google and they'll find a way to get a hold of us but those are the most popular ones yeah we'd yes. love to hear from you guys and kind of get your thoughts on this this is this is a really interesting topic for right now is everything sort of readjusting or trying to re get back to normalcy what does that mean and what improvements could we make there is an opportunity here to make an adjustment for our industry and the way things are done um and as consumers we have some say in that and obviously publishers we've, we talk to them as well and so they of course have a lot of say in that as well so yeah what are your takes we'd love to hear from you guys so let us know uh and on that note thank you guys all for listening and we will catch you all in the next episode bye